brought to you by Wild Foods Co. Let's take a second to talk about Wild Foods. Wild Foods is a food company that puts quality, sustainability, and health first in all of their products. They have everything from coffee to fish oil, and every single product is painstakingly sourced from small farms around the globe. They take their mission seriously to fix the broken food system and believe real food is medicine. They've partnered with us to give you guys an exclusive discount, so use the code MAGIC for 12% off your order. There is so much research out there on the benefits of mushrooms, and I add their mushrooms to my coffee every morning, along with their cacao butter and their MCT oil. And then I also end my day with their Cocoa Tropic, which is a proprietary blend of mushrooms, turmeric, and cacao powder. And it's reishi mushrooms, so that's great for anti-anxiety and just for ending your day on a relaxing note. And I also use their fish oil every day and their Himalayan sea salt. So, I mean, they've really got it all, you guys. They also just released a bar that's keto-friendly. It tastes amazing, and it comes in at only two grams per bar. So this means, you know, none of the sugar alcohols, and it's all the protein and fat that you need to fuel your low-carb lifestyle. With natural ingredients like almond butter and collagen, this bar is an amazing addition to your routine while still adhering to the primary values of wild foods. Wild Foods is real food with real ingredients, and our listeners get 12% off their entire order. That's right. We're offering our listeners 12% off of the entire order. So sign up at wildfoods.co slash discount slash magic hour. Again, go to wildfoods.co slash discount slash magic hour to get your discount. Welcome boys and babes to the magic hour, a place where we navigate through life's peaks and valleys with all the vulnerability and shamelessness we can muster. With the help of world-class guests from all walks of life, we uncover new truths and valuable tools for manifesting our highest potential. I'm your host, Mercedes Terrell, along with my partner in shine, Jade Bryce. Hey, you guys. So when you think about the happiest, healthiest version of yourself, I'm assuming you envision someone who feels purposeful, energetic, and capable, and who eats real, healthy food. And you probably don't imagine someone who's stuck with prescriptions for life, relies on caffeine by day and wine by night or someone who feels sad, fatigued, helpless, or hopeless. I know I don't. And today's guest has made major strides to help people discover the gentle, hopeful world of natural self-repair. Yes, and wow, what a story our guest today has. As a board-certified psychiatrist, she knows better than most that conventional medicine really only offers one single solution to every symptom, a prescription. Through naturally healing her own diagnosis and despite years earning her medical credentials, she's broken free from a life dependent on pharmaceuticals and is on a mission to help people get happy and healthy without drugs. Also board certified in integrative and holistic medicine, she's navigated the many dark spirals of her own awakening process. And now a natural health advocate, she's challenging the status quo and empowering people to open themselves to whole person healing, something that Western medical culture has quite literally vaccinated us against. She's a Kundalini yogi and author to several game-changing books on mental health and nutrition, the latest of which is called Own Yourself, The Surprising Path Beyond Depression, Anxiety, and Fatigue to Reclaiming Your Authenticity, Vitality, and Freedom, which reminds us to come up against our dissonances and reclaim our bodies as our own. The passion behind her work is made apparent as she rallies against the standards set by Western medicine and big pharma and emboldens us with tools for our own positive transformation. We are so thankful to have such a bright light grace us with her presence today. Please welcome Kelly Brogan to the Magic Hour. Mm-hmm. Hi. Great to be here. So Kelly, um, I've heard you talk about how from a young age you would strive to be different. Um and maybe even defiant in that. Do you think that part of your character, that piece of your character is part of what led you to being um, someone who would question the status quo when it came to Western medicine? Yeah. So, you know, I think my story is probably one that most can relate to, which is that there is this deeply repressed essential self 
And then there is the curated, will you love me? Will you finally accept me? Am I worthy hologram, you know, that we project to the world. And just like almost all of us, you know, I worked from a very early age to begin to learn how to gain acceptance and meet the needs of my parents um, in betrayal, really, of my own uh, understanding of myself and my own needs. Um, so that tension was, I think, you know, based on childhood experiences that, that sent my essential self really deep into the basement, that tension was really, really taut. Um, and as I, you know, began to become a professional in my medical training and whatever else, you know, I was like always in trouble and constantly, it was like getting called to the principal's office practically in my, in my residency, you know, I'm like in my twenties, I'm not a kid anymore. And, um, I just was, I've always had like this really kind of like my parents would call it like a smart mouth, right? Like a big mouth and always trying to get the last word. But then I also really always tried to kind of follow the rules and always to be beyond reproach. Like I never wanted to be caught red-handed or I never wanted to be blameworthy. So it's like this paradox of, of fundamentally um, challenging the constraints that were placed on me and also being afraid um, to, to defy them, you know, to move beyond the pale. Uh, and so I think it's really like in our in our 30s, but but maybe in this moment in time, it's happening for more and more people, no matter what age they are. You know, they could be 70, they could be 18. Yeah. Uh, but I think classically, it was like you know in our 30s that 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 hologram would I think begin to declare itself, and we would start to recognize that tension and, and begin to feel like, wow, no matter what I do to curate my life, I'm still going to feel like a fraud. I'm still going to feel that hollowness. I'm still going to be chasing like that oasis on the horizon. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, it was really just that volcano erupting <laughs> to mix metaphors, you know, in my uh, early thirties, that was pretty irrepressible. Um, and it's, it's a shadow aspect of me, which is like a know-it-all, you know, like I know better. Yeah. Than you or you to tell me um, that actually in that way served me because I was pregnant. I remember at the time treating pregnant women, medicating them. Yeah. And uh, and I was working with an OB who was um, I'm sure a very nice, kind woman, well-intentioned woman. And I just started to like challenge her on some of the science of these interventions, episiotomy and ultrasounds and C-section and whatever. And there was, you know, we kind of like our vibe <laughs> went rank at that point. And, uh, and that was the beginning of me saying, you know what, I'm going to do my own damn research and, uh, and, and leaving the obstetrical field, generally finding a midwife and ultimately pursuing, uh, you know, natural medicine. Yeah, so, I yeah, I think it's, it's these defenses serve us up until a point, but that very same defense is like the worst nightmare for my husband. You know what I mean? Like, so, so it's at a certain point they need to be transformed into their adult, uh, their adult version, I guess. Yeah. Um, and that's, your story is really interesting of how you ended up recognizing that this is something you needed to pursue because of your own needs, right? I mean, your own diagnosis. Um, after yeah, I think your that's common. I, you know, I think if you, if you look at the MDs in America who have gone rogue, you know, um, especially those who've gone radically holistic, it's, it's because of our own experience with right. the limitations, the low ceiling of that model. You know, yeah. when I was diagnosed with uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is, you know, potentially a chronic autoimmune condition, I knew I could have written my own prescription. I knew, right. you know, what I, what I was looking at and I just, I wanted to opt out. Yeah. So I, you know, I had to walk away from everything that I had learned in order to pursue the quality of life that I, I intuitively knew was right. available outside of the system. Yeah. yeah. And um, when you did do that, when you kind of broke free of that work in Western medicine, um, there had to be a lot of fear around that, a lot of um, worry about abandoning your original career path and transferring over to this new one. What, what was that like? And how did that work out for you? How did it pan out for you? Mm. Well, it's kind of like any breakup, right? If you think of, if you think of the breakups that didn't leave your heart in a puddle on the floor, it's probably because you were pissed as hell, right? So, like <laughs> rage, um, 
is a ball in, in this kind of a transition. And I wasn't afraid at all. Uh, quite the contrary. It, it was not something I could um, choose to ignore. Mm -hmm. And I felt only um, relief every time I took a step in the direction away, you know, from my training and those steps, you know, were really paved by, by science because I'd always been, you know, very interested in science. I had, thanks to my conventional training, I had learned, you know, how to, and specifically my training in medicating pregnant women, um, I had learned, you know, how to look at research and assess its quality. Uh, and so I, I kind of went back to pubmed.gov and started to figure things out for myself. And every time I learned something, you know, new that I hadn't been told, or every time, you know, I was working with a naturopath at the time and I went you know, to, to get labs done. And I saw my antibodies normalizing and I thought to myself, well, no one ever told me this was even possible, let alone that food was relevant or, you know, um, that our whole conceptualization of chronic disease might be just one version of the story. I was enraged. I was in, I'm already kind of like a hot headed Italian Irish, <laughs> you know, and I was, I was really enraged and, and it felt like a betrayal you know, because what happens is we parentify these institutions and project, you know, the good parent onto them. And I had parentified the medical institution and thought, well, obviously it knows best. It's going to guide me and all of my patients exactly where we need to go. And I had chosen to put my trust there. Right. So, you know, some say that betrayal is just waking up to something you weren't willing to see before. And I think that's a very apt definition because that's exactly what happened. I felt betrayed um, by the system I had invested blood, sweat, tears, debt, you know, into, but it was always my choice. I just didn't recognize that as a choice because we are presented the dominant medical orthodoxy as the only option, not as one of many choices of belief systems to adhere to. Mm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I'm glad you made it through that. <laughs> Here you are. <laughs> and you having been on the inside, did you experience doctors prescribing things to their patients that they wouldn't even take themselves or give their own family? Mm. That's a great question. I actually think that it's more common that doctors are uh, so enculturated that they too participate. You know, I know that a lot of my um, residency classmates, for example, were also on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicines and sleep medicines. Um, you know, I know that most of us were raised taking antibiotics, you know, at the slightest cough. Yeah. Um, it's, we were part of, and you still are part of um, that kind of a worldview that looks at pharmaceuticals as a, a benevolent offering to minimize suffering, you know? So I think it's only now that there are clinicians, um, including in the, the field of vaccinology, you know, who, who wouldn't participate in the kind of medicine they're offering their patients, you know, who, who are kind of subtly in that awkward place of saying, well, it's right for them, but not for me. And that was my experience. So maybe I was on, you know, the, the earlier edge of that where I, when I was looking down the barrel of taking a prescription for the rest of my life, yeah. I thought, well, it's fine for my patients, yeah. but I don't want to do that, you know, so that emergent uh, hypocrisy was ultimately revealed. Yeah. And I, when we, you know, I have friends that are struggling with whatever they're, maybe they have an ailment or maybe they're having a hard time getting pregnant, whatever it is, and they're reaching for answers in Western medicine for that. Um, and kind of closed off to any other options that might be available. And I think, you know, once you get down far enough into that realm and you figure out, okay, well, this isn't working now, I have to finally decide to look elsewhere. That's one route to it. But is there a better way that we can ask people to come up against their like dissonances when it comes to that way that the, our culture has sold us Western medicine is the only way for so long? Is there a way to ask people to like, remove that dogma, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wish everyone could come with us and they're just mm -hmm. not coming with us, <laughs> you know? Like that's kind of the difficult news. Mm -hmm. um, and many, many of the people probably listening uh, would characterize themselves as kind of the black sheep in their family mm -hmm. because yes. I, I built an entire community of black sheep, you know, yes. and myself included. And 
you know, my family's not coming with me. And it's taken me years, you know, to um, develop a sense of sufficient individuation where I can let them be their own people. And I don't need them to share in my reality for my reality to be valid. So that's a part of becoming an adult, right? Um, It is really allowing for other adults to live in their reality and, and not needing that uh, you know, what's often referred to as emotional symbiosis, not needing it to be totally fused in order for it to feel, to feel safe, you know, but I, I've come across and referenced this Greek word, um, which is anamnesia. I love it. Uh, because in my understanding of the definition, it means, um, the remembering of something once known. Mm -hmm. And I think it so characterizes the sensation that has been described by many at this point with me running my mouth for many years, um, when they hear this kind of information and it's almost like, oh, of course, it makes so much sense, I knew that, right? It's, it's never, almost never, oh, okay, Dr. Brogan, I've read all your references and I see you have a point, <laughs> you know, and I'm willing to participate in what you have to offer. It's almost never that. So far from it being an information-based transmission, it's simply awakening um, this innate, I'll call it wisdom, but you know, maybe it's just kind of a compass towards uh, a more peaceful, expanded version of reality than the constricted, fearful version that that individual is inhabiting, right? So they're magnetically pulled to this new understanding, this new place that is predicated on a truce with the body, right? So in this new place, the body is not a a machinery that breaks down or is rife with inbuilt errors or that ultimately you have to subdue and suppress. Mm -hmm. You know, the body is an expression, maybe even of your soul, right? The body is holding the energy of emotional conflicts, according to, you know, uh, prominent psycho neuroimmunological researchers like Dr. Candace Pert. You know, this this is now being reified scientifically what uh, I think so many people and especially artists and creatives and visionaries, they just kind of get it already. They just kind of know it and it makes sense yes. to them yeah. that the body would be this elegant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to have a scientific framework to support that intuitive knowing is kind of the cool moment we're in. Yeah. And what is natural medicine in your terms? And and maybe what is the science behind it? Mm. So I think of um, healing, right? Like we hear this word so much in the zeitgeist we're in. It's like everyone knows they've got to heal. They don't know how. They're going to choose a lane. Um, To my mind, um, healing is a process of self-discovery. And I think that that is the defining feature of what I have described as really a spiral path. So it's like, you know, you revisit over and over again, these patterns of victimhood in your life. Mm -hmm. And whether that's in relationship, in relation to your body, whether it's professionally, whether it's in your parenting, um, there are over and over again, these points of pain, rage, shame, tension, anguish that are presenting to you a familiar dynamic, bringing it up for transformation. If you are ready at that turn of the spiral, you will move towards it with empowerment and radical responsibility, and you will rewrite your story so that your body no longer has to experience that particular pattern, right? If you're not ready, that's okay too, because it'll come back around and you'll have another opportunity. Um, And so as we do this, if we are oriented towards our life experiences, whatever they may be, as being rich with opportunity for us to understand ourselves, right? As the the writers of our own narrative, as the creators of our own reality, um, then each of those experiences is just a moment to learn more. That's it. And so it's um, really a path that I think drains fear away. And that doesn't mean you can never feel fear again, of course, but it means that ultimately you you grow an adult consciousness that comes online that is always present and always able to soothe that ancient emotion, right? Because the, the fears that we have and that we feel, we like to think are universal. But what's interesting is that you know, we, those are assumptions about the objective nature of emotions. And it's highly, highly, highly individual. 
you know, the things that really bring us to that terrain of existential um, angst are very, very individual. So I don't know. I think natural health is, is ultimately a process of supporting that self-discovery journey rather than interfering or imagining that we are at odds with literally anything that's, that's happening. Yeah. And you say that you're so articulate at putting that all together. Um, and that piece of the psychology that comes behind, like whether we're willing to let these other options be um, something we will entertain is maybe it's about taking away the taboo around the way our minds work, you know, being in fear of how our minds work and being in fear of um, diving into our own psychology and figuring out how we do look at medicine and how we do look at wellness in our own body or what that means to us or why we choose, you know, we have to eat a certain way um, every day and be rigid about that, or we don't choose a diet at all. And then we, you know, end up suffering that consequence as well. Um, And in that, when it comes to the different diets that people use and the different reasons that they use them, the different dogmas they might subscribe to through their diet, even like veganism, it seems to be almost a religion at this point. How do you go about navigating that like with your patients when they might be prone to one diet or the other? And you know that that's not probably the healthiest option for them. Yeah. So, you know, we've spoken a lot so far about some of the psycho-spiritual tools, I guess, that would attend uh, a healing process. But I'm a big advocate for, you know, the kind of, uh, I call it chopping wood, carrying water, you know, like very, very, very basics of a self-care routine and engaging your power of choice, which I often, you know, conceptualize as being the greatest human power we are offered, you know, in this lifetime, um, to commit to a discipline. And, uh, you know, my, my protocol is one month long, and it turns out that that amount of discipline can be life changing, right? So, so what is the, what are the components of this month protocol? You know, they're based on my own healing experience. um, And my understanding of the scientific literature they're very basic. The intention is to send the nervous system a signal of safety. And the way you send the nervous system a signal of safety is on all those simultaneous layers, right? So it's on the physiologic layer where you minimize inflammation, you maximize nutrient availability, and you uh, eliminate you know, the, the addictive foods that are yo- and drinks that are yo-yoing you around, including your blood sugar. Um, then there's the psychological layer, which is arguably the most important in, in my opinion, which is how do you create a ritual for the experience of your own power and control over your uh, you know, embodiment, right? So, so this is a ritual that is different enough. It must be different enough from what you are doing that it disrupts your um, default mode network, your autopilot brain function, right? And so that's why, you know, most um, healing programs that, that have an impact, that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're not doing 10 of them. You're not, you know, maybe just trying it out. It's an investment of your energy and attention. And you are given a sense of control where formerly there was a sense of helplessness and overwhelm, right? So that's the, you know, psychological layer. Um, and then, you know, maybe the the spiritual layer is dissolving um, your former identity so that your essential self, as I referenced earlier, can uh, you can make contact with that, right? And if you thought that you were vegan, as many of the people who come to my program mm-hmm. do, right? Maybe you thought you were a vegan. I remember one patient who said, you know, I used to think I was a, a vegan, I should say a vegan, a liberal and that I was destined to be a school teacher, and now I have no idea who I am. Yeah, and you know, that confusion, that identity dissolution is the hallmark of rebirth. It must accompany, because if it's a smooth kind of like, oh, now I'm a little interested in this, then you're just going to be a little interested in that, and you're going to kind of like squish around the various offerings in the wellness space for the rest of time, and and skirt your own awakening potential. Right. Um, 
from my perspective, and I'm sure, you know, this is a generalization that could be proven, um, you know, proven wrong, but from my perspective, it requires um, deconstruction, you know, and, and for, for myself and for most of the uh, patients and course participants I've worked with, it's, um, it's hard and ugly, yeah. you know, and so the diet part, you know, it's really just an offering that you give yourself so that your nervous system is at ease, your physiology is balanced, and then you can recruit that witness consciousness in the moments of your, um, when your, your old stuff comes up mm-hmm. so that you can relate to yourself differently so that you can really begin that self-discovery process without brain fog and blood sugar instability and bloating and, you know, all of the rest that attends eating um, a diet that's not right for you. Now, it's important that I came upon a diet that I think is right for people who have, you know, who are struggling with depression principally, Mm -hmm. Um, diagnoses like ADHD or generalized anxiety, hypothyroidism, multiple chemical sensitivity, allergies, and autoimmunity. This is not the diet for everyone. In fact, my mentor um, advocated for 12 different diets that were subtly different from, you know, eating fatty red meat twice a day, every single day, all the way to never eating red meat, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there is a spectrum. In my mentor's absence, since he passed in 2015, I have found that it works to use this template for one month. And after that month, you get in touch with your own preferences, right? Mm-hmm. You, that, that kind of intuitive compass comes online because he also always said, and I, I feel like he kind of gave this to me as a subtle, you know, offering back when he always said, patients will want to eat the diet that heals them. Mm-hmm. So that means you actually like the food that you are meant to eat to heal. It's what you want. And that's why so many of you know, the vegans and vegetarians that have come to my office, you know, when I would say, listen, um, this diet that I'm recommending is very permissive of uh, grass-fed red meat. How do you feel about that? And they would like light up like a Christmas tree, like that I would give them permission, ultimately. Um, And that's not to recruit, you know, the ethical aspects of consuming animals and um, all of what might come into play there. And I've had many, many courageous women work through the spiritual nature of that uh, transition, you know, invoking like Native American consciousness and some of those um, indigenous folks before us who have templated what it is to have a sacred relationship to the consumption yeah. of food. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't pretend to be any sort of expert in that. I struggled with it myself. I was an ethical vegetarian before I, you know, was pregnant. So I, I get it and I don't need to speak to that at all. But from a physiologic standpoint, I know that a red meat containing diet. Um, that is restrictive of a lot of um, foods like legumes and grains and processed sugar um, is a very good complement to the what what he would call the parasympathetic dominant nervous system. So the kind of nervous system imbalance that is very common in these individuals, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's why I think it sets the foundation for the rest of the journey. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's also the calling of their, essentially their microbiome, their gut bugs that are like trying to have that communication, the gut brain communication of here's what we need. This is the colony that currently is existing here. And if you can nourish us, we can help you have a good, you know, a healthy immune system and do all the Which processes. can be a thin line because some people crave Chick-fil-A sugar yeah. <laughs> and alcohol because, and they think, well, my body must want this for my healing. But that's because <laughs> that's a psychology that. thing. <laughs> yeah. With um, natural medicine, like for me, a lot of it is common sense. Mm. Whereas the people who find it unethical to not vaccinate your children, uh, they want to argue science. And so what, like, how are you able to, um, I guess, kind of meet them where they're at because they feel like you're endangering them by not vaccinating your children, you know? Yeah. When it comes to, um, public health, we get into the very thorny fields of belief systems Mm -hmm. and what is dangerous is when we don't recognize that we are working with belief systems. And, you know, um, Rupert Sheldrake, for example, is a, is a scientist who has really called out um, the current practice of science for its use of scientism, which is essentially the religious 
appropriation of science, you know, um, to be used as a belief system without its being recognized as one, um, and instead being asserted as an objective tool uh, for the determination of truth. And that's a very dangerous concept because any scientist, any researcher knows that science is a process. There's no destination. It is always iterative, right? So I, um, I have become, you know, very, very passionate about the, the concept of informed consent, because I think it's really the only place where we can land, given our radically different perceptions of reality and the different stages that we're all at in terms of working with our shadows, mm-hmm. right? Because it might seem like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? But it's, it's my perspective that when you have not done shadow work, and what, by that I'm, you know, I'm using Jungian terminology, by that I mean when you don't understand that you are running from your own inner badness mm. and you're desperate to believe that you are ultimately you know, the person that your personality suggests you are, and you're not the liar, the cheater, the murderer, the child molester, you know, the, the thief, um, that those are all bad things out there who belong in jail, right? Then you're going to be very susceptible to germ theory, which suggests that there are invisible little bad things out there that come and get you from other bad, sick, dirty people, right? They come and get you inside you and they contaminate you and they need to be beaten into submission. Right. Like this is the most childlike psychology that is not substantiated by contemporary science according to me and many of my colleagues, um, who have allowed this hundred, hundred, hundreds of year old um, perspective that it you know, does not account for the microbiome, does not account for epigenetics, doesn't even account for the discovery of DNA. You know, vaccine science is over 200 years old and has not been advanced or progressed, right? So this is, this is a relic, but it's really a psychological relic and, and one that betrays the immature psychology that says bad things are out there that need to be destroyed because I am fundamentally good, Mm. right? And instead, an adult psychology allows for what's referred to as the mixed object, right? So allows for things to be both good and bad and actually fundamentally meaningful and non-random, right? Right. So in this world, my body, you know, interacts with the environment and what seems bad could actually be good what seems good could actually be challenging, right? There is that level of nuance, right? That belief system is totally at odds with a belief system that is forever using force to fight the badness outside of us, right? And, and we're talking about germs, but you could talk about, you know, terrorists or, you know, you could, you could apply that to any, um, any technology to apply that same psychology. And so if we allow for these differences in belief, that inform our medical choices. Informed consent is the ethical bedrock for those differences to exist harmoniously. Because informed consent says, it is ultimately my choice based on all of the available information to permit um, a medical treatment, right? To allow for a medical treatment, of course, one that penetrates my body, Mm -hmm. right? Let alone the body of mine you know, my child. And so if we if adhere to that ethical tenet, then you always have a choice, mm-hmm. no matter what. And there is not anything that supersedes that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think if we can get back to medical basics, we can restore that. And then we can begin to uh, perhaps really allow for the true exposure of some of the science-based, you know, the the indicting, you know, that the science has the capacity to do of the modern practice of vaccination when it comes to safety and efficacy. Because right now we're in paralysis uh, because of the default assumption that this is an urgent intervention that should um, supersede all other considerations, including ethical considerations. But once we kind of secure that, then we can actually take a fresh look at what the science you know, has to say so that people can actually make informed choices. And thankfully, you know, despite Google algorithmic suppression of you know, those of us who are trying to get the word out, thankfully I do think that a tipping point has already been reached right. and kind of everyone already knows someone 
who knows about this. Mm -hmm. So I actually think it's a bit late for censorship. Yeah. And I think that's great that, um, you know, the fact that we're having the conversation right now, I guess, speaks to Mm -hmm. the fact that it's getting out there, you know, this is a way and, um, and it's I'm, a scary thought. Yeah, it's yeah. a scary thought. And the, the whole censorship. the whole Google, Google censorship, um, maybe you can speak on that a little bit, just because I think that a lot of people don't know what's going on there. They think if they yeah. Google it, they're going to get the answers, right. but they don't realize how it's filtered. The opposite. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how they would know if not listening to this kind of conversation, right? Because it's, um, you know, there's been a little bit of, of media about it, but it was basically in June um, of this past year, there was an algorithm put into place that effectively treated as um, fringe any uh, alternative natural health um, websites that provided information like the information we're discovering. And so me and about, I would say 40 of my colleagues Um, found ourselves dropped off of organic search. So what that means is that whereas I might have been a first page result that I have, you know, diligently without any capital or anything, just over the years made sure that I answered questions that people were actually asking about, let's say like the gut brain, you know, maybe an article that I wrote would come up on a first page search. Now you literally cannot find my articles unless you put my name in. Right, so that's not how people search for information on the timeline. If someone were to post it, yeah, so you can interestingly, um, you can go to Google Trends and you can actually find, um, not only you know, kind of how these things have dropped off, um, the, the, the site visits, etc., like we've lost almost all of our organic traffic, but you can also see that what they are auto populating the search result with. So, you know, if you put in like like vitamins are, and it might come up, you know, uh, synthetic or whatever, like things that people actually search for. But now the auto population of those search phrases is inconsistent with what people are actually searching for. Mm. So they're engineered. So it might be vitamins are, it might be deadly, Mm. you know, maybe that's not a great example. Mm -hmm. Um, because maybe people are actually searching for that. But there are many instances in the vaccine realm where people are absolutely not, or GMOs, for example, people are absolutely not searching for, you can see from the Google trends that they're not searching for this, and yet it's coming up as a suggestion, Yeah. right? So, you know, I think that, uh, and there, there's actually been quite a courageous um, whistleblower who's potentially risked his life um, to come forth with the agenda that has been going on behind Google's closed doors because they uh, apparently believe that this is the best way to keep dangerous information from the American public, mm-hmm. right? So perhaps there is a good intention behind it. Um, but it's like I explained to my daughter, you know, who's 10, I said, it's kind of like if you're going to the library, right? But you think it's like a normal library and they're going to have a collection of books and, you know, you're going to look around. But instead, it has the outside of a normal library, but but it's actually the librarian's favorite books only. Mm. So it's only her favorite books, but if you're perusing and you don't know that, then you could miss out on like a ton of books that could be really important for you. And if you knew it was the librarian's choice of books, maybe you'd go to a different library, right? So once we know this information and you, you, you know, I no longer use Google as a search engine, um, you know, you can go to DuckDuckGo or, you you know, new ones will be born. I know that. And that's the kind of silver lining of this is like the transparency era that we're in. Like you can't get away with shit anymore. And because of that, you know, there will be fertile soil for, you know, um, conscious entrepreneurial efforts to meet the needs of a free informational right. economy. And I, I do think that that's going to be born of this. Yes, I'm all for that authenticity. I'm all for that transparency. So because you deal with mainly women, um, how much do our hormonal cycles come into play when we're talking about mental health and physical health in your work? Mm. Yeah, so in my practice, I um, have treated only women. So I have a good amount of experience with um, the role of hormones. I know nothing about hormones in men. Don't ask me about that. But um, (laughs) 
So, you know, what's interesting to me is that so many of the women I work with have been uh, treated with birth control pills over their lifetime. I myself took them for 12 years um, because I had kind of an insider knowledge biologically. I knew that I didn't even have to bleed, that it was like a false cycle. So I even continuous cycled. So I pretty much took birth control continuously for, for 12 years. Um, stopped birth control, got pregnant like a month later, right? And then was pregnant and breastfeeding for the following, God, I don't know, what, five years. So I was like into my late 30s before I actually had a natural cycle that I could even recognize as something to learn about. And I don't think I'm that unique. You know, I think this is this relative common now. And so as, you know, as somebody later in life, I'm just beginning to work with the rhythm of my, you know, biological energy. Um, and this is not to even go into the territory of how we're related to the natural world and the moon cycles, yeah. right? This is literally just the, the hormonal relevance of your having at least four stages in one month um, that you are ultimately, you have different levels of energy, you have different levels of creativity, your brain is functioning in different ways, your emotional signatures are gonna be different. If you don't know how to work with that, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're functioning with a handicap. Yeah. Fundamentally. Yeah. Right. And so because we are coming out of an era of feminism, egalitarian feminism, where we, myself included, were so invested in, you know, I can do what you can do bleeding kind of a psychology. Like I'm, I'm just as good, if not better than, you know, any man. And I'm going to show you by basically, you know, uh, you know, neutering myself by basically, you know, um, eliminating any, any evidence of my femininity. Right. Uh, we're coming out of that. And thankfully, we're coming into a deeper understanding of how our relationship to our bodies is ultimately a source of tremendous advantage and power. But healing that, um, that energetic cycle over the course of the month does, in my experience, require the same layers we were talking about. So, understanding, you know, how your physiology is reflecting to you hormonal imbalance, right? So, you know, I had a patient, Ali, who's, who's very public with her story, who was so uh, psychotic before her period that in, in uh, several of the cycles, she would, she was like digging a hole in her cheek, thinking that something was like in her cheek, she was suicidal. She had, I think, five very serious suicide attempts, multiple medications, multiple hospitalizations. Within two cycles, she was physiologically balanced, right? And in, in her case, we also recruited a detox strategy I learned from my mentor called the coffee enema, um, you know, and now notorious coffee enema. Um, and so, you know, it was from that bedrock that she could then begin the psycho-spiritual process of healing as a woman right. and learn what it meant for her to reclaim herself, right, from all of the ways that she gave her power away right. over the course of her lifetime. So I'm a big, big believer, again, in that chopping wood, carrying water and um, yeah. understanding that, you know, you don't have to take 700 supplements and progesterone and all this stuff. First, get the basics on lock, meditation, detox, diet, and consumer conscious consumerism. So making sure you're not using hormonally disruptive products, you know, cleaning products or cosmetics. Um, so filter. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're also a kundalini yogi. How has kundalini had an effect on your journey with natural medicine? Um, so it's so interesting because I don't know if you know, there's a huge controversy exploding in the community right now, um, indicting, you know, uh, the teacher Yogi Bhajan who brought Kundalini over from the East to America. And, um, and so I've been really immersed in that. I just finished a, a book called Premka on, on the subject, like an expose, right? Bit of a me too kind of an expose, but I think very beautifully presented and, um, and so it's interesting because I never really fell into the, like, I've found my religion um, that some people literally do with Kundalini yoga, where it's conflated with Sikhism. And so some people really do take it to that level. Um, and I'm sure it served them. Uh, for me, it was like a revelation that I could actually get anything out of meditating. Mm -hmm. 
why I ultimately became a, a teacher because I knew that I wanted to equip those people who know that they needed to meditate probably more than anyone else with a means to have an ex, like a micro experience quickly, right? Because I'm the kind of person who I'll sit down to do a mindfulness meditation and literally come out feeling worse, mm. right? Self-flagellating, like what's wrong with you that you can't even sit for 10 minutes. You got to like, think about what you need from, you know, whole foods or like, the 4,000 things you forgot to write on your to-do list or, oh my God, I need to call it. And that would be the detritus and the garbage in my brain would just be revealed to me. Um, and I actually had that experience in, in yoga too, like vinyasa yoga. I would go in, I would do an hour, feel like it's good for me to have done it. And I would leave feeling worse emotionally and psychologically because I just spent an hour with my trash in my mind, you know, and I had no discipline over it. I had no capacity to tame it. And so I found that the practice of Kundalini, which in, invokes many different things, so often like hand movements uh, called mudras or breathing patterns that are somewhat complex, like eight sniffs in and then one long one out the mouth, you know, uh, your eyes sometimes have to look in a particular direction. And sometimes there's something that is physically challenging, like holding your arms up for, you know, 11 minutes or whatever, that ultimately has the capacity to 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 train and tame the mind for that small moment mm -hmm. so that you can have a little bit of contact with that emptiness. Mm -hmm. And for me, it, it has really worked and gave me the opportunity to develop a daily practice that I think ultimately rewired my nervous system so that I no longer experience uh, fight or flight the way that I was chronically uh, resting. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you also uh, speak about a randomized trial who, where they're using yoga as a means to um, help with OCD specifically, right? Yeah. So this is my colleague, David Shanahoff, also such a wonderful um, heart-centered, brilliant man. And he has been doing this research for a long time, trying very hard to get a lot of it published and he succeeded in uh, mainstream journals. And yeah, in this particular study, there was a 70% remission rate of OCD symptoms. And if you know anything about the pharmacological studies on OCD, they're really pretty sad, you know, like 23, 30% remission is pretty typical with uh, the use of antidepressant medication. So, you know, my thought, of course, this was in the rage and indignation phase was <laughs> like, why have, why, why didn't I at least hear about that e even to be dismissed, you know, as some like quackery or what I never even heard. I should know about this one study with this outcome, yeah. you know, because it's so um, far surpasses what's otherwise available for, you know, um, something that many people struggle with. So exactly. yeah, powerful tool. Powerful. So there's a few short questions we like to ask everyone who comes on the show. Yeah. So if you could hug your younger self right now, what would you say? Uh, I would say you were right all along. Mm. How old were you when you were hugging yourself there? Oh, like six. Six. Mm. If you could have the whole world read one book, which would it be? <coughs> and not mine. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> well, we recommend all those as well. <laughs> it would, um, the whole world read one book. Okay. I'm going to give. A, a plug to my friend Charles Eisenstein and I would have them read a book called Ascent of Humanity which I believe is a book that he channeled um, it's huge unfortunately it's like 600 something pages and it's basically like you know what you know but here's another version of the truth about everything um, so it's Ascent like A-S-C-E-N-T of humanity oh okay cool yeah, very, very and if you could whisper one phrase to everyone on the planet what would it be? Thank you. Mm. So before we let you go, where can people find you online? Um, so I'm over at kellybroganmd.com and we have lots of free information and then tools, you know, for your, your level of readiness as you, as you travel your spiral. Thank you so Beautiful. much. This was amazing. And I just want to tell you that the work that you're doing is really changing lives. I'm sure you already know that. I'm sure you get all kinds of response from your community, but it's changing our lives as well. So we're just really inspired by your light. Thank yeah, you. I appreciate that. It's because you're remembering what you already knew. <laughs> mm, that's good. <laughs> you already are. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. Take care. Ah, 
Wow. I could have spent all day with her. She's got so much dang information. I know. I know. I learned a lot. And she's very, um, like you said, when she got on, she has a very um, just goddess-like energy that you just want to be around. For sure. She's so articulate too. Yeah. Very magical. I like it. I like it. I'll strive for it. (laughs) What is your magic trick? My magic trick is to become more like Dr. Kelly Brogan. No, mm-hmm. um, uh, even though that probably won't hurt your life. Um, okay, so my magic trick is basically the idea comes from these two quotes that are from two of my favorite minds in the realm of psychology and wellness. So that's Dr. Gabor Mate, who I hope comes on our show one day as well. Um, and then Thais Sky, who we have had on our show. We love Thais. Mm. So Gabor says, all of Western medicine is built on getting rid of pain, which is not the same as healing. Healing is actually the capacity to hold pain. And Thais says, sometimes healing is about actively removing pain, but most of the time healing is the process of not identifying with the pain. It's about learning how to hold it rather than eliminate it. Because as we learn how to be with all of who we are, we find brilliant truth that our pain is actually the portal into our greatest depths. So if you're experiencing pain in any part of your life or even anywhere in your body, I'd invite you to look for the cause instead of just treating the symptom. So the modalities of that, um, which seem to be helpful for me, but um, you might use any of these, or maybe you have your own recommendations, which I'd love to hear about on our social media platforms. Um, meditating, sitting in stillness, using a float tank, that always works wonders. And uh, shadow work, so looking inward, and that is a very big um you know, ask that's a, if, and by the way, if any of these things that I'm going to list off are things that you're not familiar with, look them up and start getting familiar with them. Uh, another one would be, of course, reading one of Gabor's books or a book on holistic medicine or a book on how our pain is related to, to our root traumas or our childhood traumas, um, which is a lot of what Gabor Mate's books are about. So that's a good modality for that. And then stream of consciousness journaling. This is huge, and it's something that anyone can do. It's just where you grab a piece of paper and you literally just start writing down anything that's going on in your mind. So, becoming aware of your thought—excuse <clears throat> me—becoming aware of your thoughts and writing them down as they come up, and it will con- it will basically translate into something that you do need to look at when you give your your mind the chance to um, do that practice. I promise. When it when you do it the first time, you're going to be like, "Holy shit! How did that?" how did I pull that out of thin air? Um, when you give your, your mind a chance to sit in stillness and discuss with you the things it really needs to discuss, it will show up, I promise. Uh, and then the other options here would be to talk to a therapist, which you know we're big advocates of here on the show. And of course, you could always listen to your favorite podcast, The Magic Hour, to get some help on... Uh, finding your truth and getting to the root of your pain. So yeah, you guys know I had a self plug there, but that's (laughs) (laughs) all those, um, all those routes will lead you to, I think some benefits around getting to the root of your pain and hopefully, uh, getting better at holding it as Gabor says. So Mm. what about your magic Jade? Mine is very different. Um, it's the ancient Ayurvedic recommendation of tongue scraping, which is often overlooked. And a lot of people like, I I had never heard of it until I went to Brazil and they, they often do it there. Um, but there are many benefits to this daily practice, um, even outside of oral health. And when, when I introduce people to it, they, it's like it feels invigorating. Like you do it once and you don't ever want to stop because your mouth just feels so much cleaner. But um, <clears throat> there are many benefits. But um, the Ayurvedic thoughts are that it removes any buildup on the tongue, which if left untreated, obviously it can cause bad breath um, and house a number of significant, you know, 
bacteria. Bugs, yeah. Yeah. But they believe that it, um, or the Ayurvedic, Ayurvedic belief is that it is a direct way of removing ama from your physio- physiology. What's that? And so ama refers to any accumulation of toxic residue in the mind body. This can result from improper eating, poor digestion, or a reflection of imbalance somewhere in the gastrointestinal system. In addition, hmm. from an Ayurvedic perspective, by removing this coating, you improve your ability to, t- to taste your food, which not only makes it more satisfying, but you end up eating less and it also eliminates the need to add more sugar, salt, or excessive hmm. spice to the food to make it more flavorful. Um, so there's that, but you know, one of the main benefits, if, if you're not all into all that, is just it removes bacteria um, and in, improves overall health by doing so because it prevents you know all types of diseases, um, in, including diseases in your mouth like cavities and gum disease, uh, because it reduces the overall incidence of mutants streptococci and lactobacilli. <laughs> yeah, you don't uh, you you don't have to. Uh, tell me if I said that, if I, if I said that wrong, because I probably don't know, um, I don't even know, but it also improves your tongue's appearance and and overall Mm -hmm. sensation. Um, it does reduce bad breath as well. Um, and that's the main reason people use it is because tongue scraping aims to remove odor causing substance Mm -hmm. substances called volatile sulfur compounds. Um, so there is evidence that tongue scraping helps improve oral hygiene. Um, so uh, I got a tongue scraper. Um, it's just a, a U-shaped um, steel tongue scraper on Amazon. I got two for $9, so they're super cheap. Um, and uh, it's helpful that they come with two because I don't recommend sharing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like a toothbrush, I suppose. But so, I mean, as far as not wanting to share. But yeah, and I, so I just, I put it to the back of my tongue and I scrape down. I rinse it under really hot water. I do it again. I do it again until nothing's coming off. And I do that every morning and every Mm. night. And honestly, like your mouth feels so much cleaner that you, you don't feel right not doing it anymore. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so I brush my tongue with my electric toothbrush. Like when I brush my teeth, then I brush my tongue at the end and I go Mm -hmm. like down the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Is that not going to break up enough? I need to scrape it for some reason. So this cannot take the place of like using your toothbrush, obviously, but... No, not um, with your teeth, but I mean... Yeah, I wanted to just make sure that that was clear. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's all, I use a tongue scraper, all my teeth are falling out. I don't know what the problem is. Um, But uh, yeah, like that's good. Um, But the difference with this is it just like, it goes down. It like the way that you're scraping your tongue, you're getting like the entire tongue at once. You're scraping Mm. everything off. Mm. So just try it and see what you think. Okay, I will. I'm talking to you, Mercedes. <laughs> I know you are. I, so I said I know. All right, I will. Yeah, damn it. Uh, c- cool. I'll uh, take a video. What like disgusting crud comes off my tongue? You know, I ain't scared. Okay. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> you gonna send it to me? All right, you guys. I wanted to mention also that our listeners, um, you know, you, you guys truly get us, and um, it just it means the world to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, sometimes we struggle with the work that we're doing here and it just makes it a hundred percent worth it when you guys speak up and leave a review. Yes. Like that's it. Just leave a, leave a review, leave us a five star, you know, tell us if you loved the show, that's what we need from you. If you want us to, uh, I don't know if you have any inkling in you that tells you, you know, Mm -hmm. today I want to show Jade and Mercedes some love. That is the number one best way to do that so that yeah. we can continue living, living our passion and leaving our voice on this show um, or our stamp on the world through this show. You guys, mm-hmm. thank you so much in advance yeah. for doing it. We appreciate you. Or, you know, post, post about it on Instagram. <laughs> Any of those. Right. Anything, anything. <laughs> All right, magic members. Thank you so much for tuning in and taking this journey with us. If this episode held some magic for you, please share it with your friends and family. This would mean so much to us, like we were saying. And don't forget to join us on our Instagram page at The Magic Hour and let us know what your favorite episodes have been so far. We appreciate all of your feedback and really want to know what's lighting you up. Yes, you guys. And on our all of our social platforms, um, we want to just remind you that we spell Magic Hour, M-A-J-I-C. So that's at the Magic Hour. So we will see you there. And we also release a new episode every Monday. So you can catch us again next week or go listen to some of our past episodes in our podcast library now. 
we'll meet you there until then be a quick disclaimer we are not medical professionals so following any of our protocols or advice should be done at your own risk people and please remember to always always do your own research tap into that extraordinary growth mindset we all have access to within ourselves and seek out your own answers. Come on, guys, you know, you know the deal. And by the way, if you are a medical professional or an expert in any topic we cover and you feel we are not giving accurate information about it, please find somewhere to contact us. Contact us via social or email us at our website and let us know. A major goal of ours in doing this podcast is to bring value to people's lives by sharing helpful insights and info. So we welcome being corrected at any time and we'll be happy to share any of our fuck ups with our listeners so as to get us all back on track to discovering our happiest, healthiest selves.